But please turn with me in the scriptures to the gospel according to Matthew and chapter 1. I've asked to put on the service sheet that we're going to read from verse 18. But actually I want us to read the whole chapter because we will be in the first point at any rate harking back to these verses. Though I hope we won't be going over too much ground from this morning's sermon. But let's read together Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to read the whole chapter together. Matthew chapter 1 then and verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Terah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Narshan, and Narshan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Isaiah, and Isaiah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiod, and Abiod the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, fourteen generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Amen. Well, let's just bow our heads together in prayer again now. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you now and we ask that you would enlighten us, enlighten our minds. And as we come to hear your word, speak to us, we pray. In whatever needs and differing circumstances we've come, Lord, may your word be as dots of the heart, applied to our situations. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would apply your word, that it would be applied to us, Lord, that we would not just hear truths, but that they would be truths which take deep root within us and bring forth fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, naming a child is important. We've gone through the process four times now. And it can be a long process. Involving lots of discussion. Maybe some research. Meaning of names. People who are called and and so on. However, there have been few. No, I, I should probably say there have been no namings in history. Quite as significant as the one we have before us here this evening in Matthew chapter 1. We have here the birth of Jesus, but from Joseph's perspective particularly. And the real question in the passage that we've just read before us is, will Joseph accept Jesus as his son and name him as a father ought to do, particularly in that culture? Now, of course, the reason for the question mark is well known. Joseph is engaged to be married to Mary. And um, as far as he knows, both he and his wife are virgins. And then suddenly he finds out that Mary, his bride-to-be, is pregnant. You can imagine the shock, the sense of betrayal. He knows that he and Mary haven't slept together. So there's only one explanation, isn't there? The only explanation is that Mary has been unfaithful. Now, of course, we know that that isn't the case. Matthew tells us straight away, he can't allow any speculation on this point. So right right as soon as he introduces the subject, he tells us that this child, in verse 18, was from the Holy Spirit. But Joseph doesn't know that. And so he's minded to divorce Mary. In that culture and time, being betrothed meant more than just engagement does with us today. And breaking off that relationship would involve a divorce. Verse 19, that's what Joseph's inclined to do. He's inclined to divorce her. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But while Joseph is looking into this issue, he receives a vision. Verses 20 to 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus he will save his people from their sins. Mary, you're betrothed, says the angel. 
has not been unfaithful. The child she's carrying is from the Holy Spirit. The conception is a miracle. It's something that's being performed by God. It's a virgin conception. And Joseph says the angel must accept this child as his own son. That's the implication of this instruction in verse 21, that Joseph is to take the responsibility of a father and name him. He's not only to take Mary in, he's to name the child. He's to call him Jesus. And so we come to this important issue of the naming of Jesus here. Now as we read through this narrative, well maybe we don't wonder this, but if we were reading this for the first time we'd be wondering, well what's Joseph going to do? Is he going to believe the angel? Is he going to take on this child, this son, as his own? Now ultimately he does take Mary as his wife. And he does acknowledge Jesus as his son and name him. Read that in verses 24 to 25. But I want us to look this evening at the significance of this naming of Jesus. And we're going to look particularly at the three names in this passage that are given to to Jesus. Three names or titles that are given to Jesus. And the first point, and this is the one that may have some overlap with this morning. The first title is Son of David. The second one is Jesus. And then the third one, the third name is Emmanuel. Well, first of all, Son of David. And this is perhaps the most central one in the narrative. And it's one that's given right at the beginning of the book. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And this is the key significance, actually, of Joseph's acceptance of Jesus as his son. Because the significance is that by by Joseph accepting Jesus as his son, Joseph is adopting Jesus into the kingly line of Israel. Because Joseph, as this genealogy at the beginning of of, of Matthew chapter 1 shows, is a descendant of the great king of Israel, King David himself. And not just a descendant of King David, but a descendant in the kingly line. That's not to say, and this is important, that's not to say that Jesus was not also a biological descendant of Jesus. As we heard this this morning as well. But um, we seem to have Mary's genealogy in Luke chapter 3. And that gives, via a different son of David, Jesus' biological descent. But that wasn't through the kingly line. That was through another son, uh, Nathan. Not through Solomon, the king. But in Joseph we have one who is by legal descent a potential claimant to the throne of Israel. That's one of the reasons why Matthew spends so much time providing this genealogy at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1. A genealogy that does go back to Abraham, but but in which David is the star. It's David who along with Abraham is highlighted as Uh, an ancestor of Jesus in verse 1. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's um, only David, who in a long line of kings is called David the king. David is the only one who's called the king in verse 6. 
And even the structure of, the, of this um, genealogy points towards David. Where we have this three, these three groups of 14 that Matthew notes in verse 17. I'm going to be a little bit stronger maybe than my brother was this morning and say that, that it, I would say it's almost certain that Matthew intends his readers at this point to realize because this is the kind of thing that first century Jews did. They liked to add up the na- numbers in people's names and it would mean things to them. And if you add up Hebrew letters mean different numbers. And if you add up the numbers that make up David's name, the number is 14. And spread throughout this genealogy is David. He's the one highlighted at the beginning. He's the one called the king. The whole pattern refers to David, the number 14. It's on the basis of this genealogy that's all about David that the, the angel then appears to Joseph and calls him what? Joseph, verse, uh, verse 20 Joseph, son of David. One of the key points then in this naming process, in this adoption of Jesus as the son of Joseph, is the fact that by acknowledging Jesus as his legal son, Joseph is thereby adopting Jesus into the legal line of the kings of Israel. And the importance of this cannot be Overstated. Because the claim made throughout Matthew's Gospel and throughout the New Testament, indeed one of the fundamental claims of Christianity, is that Jesus was and is a king. That God has set him up as the ruler over all the world. That he is the Lord of all things. Whether it may appear that way at any (coughs) moment in history or not. And this claim is rooted in the claim that Jesus was the Messiah. That is the anointed one, the promised king, the promised descendant of David who would come. And Joseph's adoption of Jesus is key in that. Because Joseph adopts Jesus into the kingly line. The Messiah was promised to David's descendants. And any claimant needs to demonstrate that lineage. And that's what the adoption of Jesus by Joseph demonstrates. Not only biologically descended from David through Mary, but also in the legal line of the kings through his adopted father, Joseph. Matthew's at pains to underline this. But but we may ask, well, why is this so important? Now, now on one level, just in terms of Matthew's perhaps immediate purpose, this would have served an apologetic purpose. Those in Matthew's day who were looking for a Messiah were looking for one who was from the royal line of David. And this is Matthew's evidence in defense of that claim and that significance. Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. This was and it is one of the demonstrations that he is the Messiah. But it's more than that. If we, need to, if we want to understand the significance of Jesus, we need to understand why God had promised a king in the first place. And to understand that, we need to go right back to the beginning. When Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, when they sinned, many things were lost. Fellowship with God, above all. But one of the things that was lost was the the ruler 
or the rulers that God had set over creation. When God made all things, he made mankind in his image. As part of that, he set human beings over creation. He gave them dominion. This was particularly seen in Adam, but it would have been seen in all of his descendants too. But when Adam sinned, that came to an end. Man's nature was now fallen. And while in some measure God's image remained, it was marred, distorted. And with that, the creation lost the ruler, the king that it had been created to have. But then, in the nation of Israel, God's Old Testament people, God began the process of putting that right. Began the process of drawing near again, bringing his presence near again. And we'll see a little bit more about that, particularly in our final point. But one of the things that he established was a king. And not just as a form of government for Israel, though it was that. But it was a reinstitution of kingship for the world. And sometimes I think people read the story of of the Israelites wanting Saul and getting a bad king to, to indicate kingship was basically bad. But no, actually... God had foretold back in Deuteronomy that there would be a king. But it had to be the right king. Not the kind of king that they were asking for. Kingship was God's institution in Israel. And it was something which was ultimately to be for the world. Let me just turn to Psalm 2. We sang this earlier. Let me just read a couple of verses from Psalm 2. Where we see this point. Psalm 2, let me read verses 6 and 7. This is what God says. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Then the psalmist says, I will declare the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. But then what does he say? Verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. There we have a promise of universal dominion for the Davidic king. And this was all part of a wider vision whereby God's justice and his righteousness will be brought to the whole earth. And it was David and his descendants who were to be the ones by, this, by which this would be brought about. By whom this universal dominion would, would come about, not just for Israel, But for the whole world. And so, when we speak about Jesus as the son of David, as God's promised king, as the Messiah, we're speaking about him as this type of king. That's what's envisioned here. Not just a ruler who's going to come and he may be bad or good, no. It's this type of king who's reinstituting what it should have been like in the beginning. The right kind of king who will execute God's will in the earth and bring righteousness to the lands. We do perhaps see kings and rulers in our own age, human kings and rulers. And we maybe get a, have bad ideas. You know, think about someone like Putin. He, now he's not a king, I know that. But he's essentially an absolute ruler and we see him pursuing that brutal war in Ukraine. See someone like Xi Jinping there. President of China and the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. Again, an absolute ruler. 
persecuting Christians in China. You look at our own land. We see our political leaders embroiled in scandal, notorious for skin, for spin and deceit and, and all the rest of it. You know what it's like. And perhaps we think, well, the last thing we need is more of this. But that's the wrong type of king. That's the wrong type of ruler. These people do not bring the justice of God to the world. They do not bring righteousness, or at least, I mean, I'm not saying that, I'm sure all of these countries have some laws that are good. But but not in a pure sense. Alongside what's good, there's also that which is evil. But God's king is all righteous. God's king is all just. Let me ask you this evening, have you realised that God has appointed a king? And that he's a universal king. That he's ruling from heaven now and that he will come again to this world one day. And this world will be transformed. And God's true rule established. And will you rejoice in that truth? You know, one of the tragedies of this age is that so often justice is not done. You think of somebody like Jimmy Savile. People fawning over him his whole life. While he's committing his monstrous crimes. You know, how must his victims have felt? As they look upon him on the television receiving honour after honour. Not a word against him. Till after he's dead. And if, that, if that's all that there is, what a sickening thing. But God has appointed his king. Jimmy Savile has already appeared before him and he shall appear before him again at the end of time. And Jimmy Savile shall be judged. And he'll be seen to be judged for his crimes. And ultimately that is something in which to rejoice that righteousness will be done. But it's also something to make us fear. We read Psalm 2 earlier, didn't we? But how does it go on? Verses 9 to 11. What does the sun do? You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Less of all who take refuge in him. God has set up his king. That's what Christ is. That's who this babe born in Bethlehem was. And that one will judge in righteousness. But it isn't only Jimmy Savile who will be judged. It's you and I also. You and, you and I in the, the way that we've been Cruel to people or selfish or thoughtless or whatever it is. Deserving of God's condemnation. And we see these things in other people, don't they? When they hurt us or neglect us or whatever it is that we feel people have done to us. But if only we could see the results of our own actions. If only we could, that's in In the eyes of an infinitely holy God, you are condemned. Whether you feel like you should be or not. Well, that's this naming of Jesus. He's the son of David. He's legally in the kingly line. As Messiah, he's the king 
the anointed one that Psalm 2 speaks of, set up as king of all things. That's the first point, son of David. But secondly, the second name, Jesus. And now we come to the, what we might call the actual name of Jesus. Let's read verse 21. The angel says to Joseph that, he, that, this, that this son, this child from the Holy Ghost. And then verse 21. She will bear a son, that's Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now there are a couple of, of ideas, of thoughts that this name should conjure up. Firstly, this is a, a, a Greek version of a, of a Hebrew name, meaning the Lord or Yahweh Jehovah saves. And this name being applied to Jesus heralds God's salvation. What that is, we'll see in a moment. But actually this name would have also been striking to Joseph for another reason. Because the history of Israel, the history of Joseph's nation, included a very prominent figure with this same name. Because Jesus is in fact the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. In fact, if you read the the New Testament in the original language, you'll find that when it mentions Joshua of the Old Testament, it just uses the word Jesus. And and actually, if any of you have or do read the authorised version, you'll note it does the same. You'll find a confusing experience as you're reading the book of Acts. And it speaks about Jesus bringing the tabernacle into the promised land. And you're thinking, well, when did that happen? It's talking about Joshua, because Jesus is Joshua. They're the same name. But Joshua had been the great saviour, great leader of Israel, the one who had led the people into victory over the Canaanites, who'd led them and brought them into the promised land. Sorry. And so this name would have, would have instantly conveyed certain ideas to Joseph. It would have been rather like an angel appearing to you and saying, you, you shall have a son and you shall call his name Churchill, for he shall defend his people from their enemies. And it would immediately resonate, wouldn't it? You'd think, oh, he's going to be called Churchill because he's going to be like Churchill. He's going to be, he's going to be defending, you know, there's going to be some war, he's going to be a leader or whatever. And in light of that, you know, perhaps Joseph would have been surprised by how the sentence ended, though. His adopted son is to be named after the great war leader of Israel. And it will be because he will save his people from, and, and you know, you can imagine Joseph, in his mind, he's already filling in the blanks, isn't he? He's, he's already finishing the sentence. He shall save his people from their enemies. From the Romans. Imagine him kind of almost starting to leap off with joy. That isn't what the angel says though. Rather what does he say? Verse 21. She shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And this might have surprised Joseph. Perhaps it would have surprised a first century Jewish reader of this passage. Perhaps it surprises you. If you'd asked a first century Jew what his people needed saving from, there's a good chance that he or she would have said, from the Romans. The Jews knew all about the promised king to come, the Messiah. And a good number of them were looking for a military leader. And particularly when the angel brings the great leader Joshua into the equation. 
What else is Joseph going to think? But no, when God provides his king, when God provides the new Joshua, the one to destroy the enemy of God's people, he comes to save, not from the Romans, not from any political enemy, he comes to save from sin. Does that surprise you? Maybe it does. And we live in a world, don't we, where we have, we have wars, we have pandemics, cancers, terrorism, chemical weapons, nuclear weapons, child abuse, rape. We could go on and on. But if you read the, the words of the angel this evening, as you're hearing an announcement of salvation, that the Savior has come, he'll deal with your problems, the problems of the world. God's provided his king. The one who will bring salvation, he'll save from, and perhaps you also begin to, to fill the blanks. Perhaps he'll bring to an end that war in Gaza. Perhaps he'll bring to an end cancer. No. It's sin. It's sin from which he has come to save us. Your biggest problem is not nuclear weapons. It's not climate change. It's not war. These things may be problems, but the great problem from which God has sent his king to save his people, the great problem is sin. Do you realize that? (coughs) The fall of mankind ushered in all of these other calamities. They result from sin. They flow from it. And so to reverse these, as God ultimately does plan to do, Sin must first be defeated. But it's more than that. The highest end for which men and women were created was to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, as the first question of the Shorter Catechism puts it. And the truth of the matter is that whether we realize it or not, this is the most urgent need that people have. Fellowship with God. To glorify and enjoy Him. Our sin... Our rebellion against God has separated us from fellowship with Him. And because, as we've already said, Christ will judge the world in righteousness, we stand to be condemned, in fact, rather than enjoy that fellowship if our sin is not dealt with. Sin, then, is the most urgent problem we have. Now, were you aware of this? Did you realize the urgency of the problem of sin? Think of what the penalty for sin is. The Bible speaks of an eternal punishment in hell. What are a few moments here on earth in comparison with that? In comparison with forever and ever and ever. It doesn't mean the issues of this world are unimportant. But it does mean that the most urgent need is for our sin to be dealt with. Maybe you'd say that you are a Christian here this evening. But do you long for greater fellowship with God? A fellowship which is marred because of unrepentant sin in your life. Do you realize the danger? Do you realize the danger that this sin could actually ultimately come before you and God? That if you continue in sin, Pursuing that rather than the living God that ultimately you may 
desire that more than God. That ultimately you may stand condemned. It's not a light thing. You have known people. And they seem to be at one point upstanding Christians. And then bitterness got a hold. Some other sin. And it worked away. Not addressed. Not repented of. And these people are now nowhere. And as I get older, there were more and more people that I could add to that list. It's frightening. Sin is not to be taken lightly. Understand the seriousness of it. Or perhaps this evening, perhaps you're not a Christian. Have you realised the importance of this? Have you realised that you are not good enough for God? No, yes, maybe by the standards of other people you are. But before an infinitely holy God, a God who cannot and will not abide sin, who will not permit evil to persist in his creation, the one who's created, a, who's set forth a king to remove it, to judge it, to bring righteousness to the world. Before that God, you do stand condemned. Have you realised that? But yet we read, this Joshua, this Jesus has come to save from sin. To restore the lost relationship with God. To provide forgiveness. The passage this evening doesn't give all the details of how this will be. But it tells us that this baby born to Mary and Joseph. Will be the one who will save his people from their sins. If we were to continue reading Matthew's gospel. We would find a righteous life lived by Jesus. No blemish. No sin. And yet we would read of the leaders of Israel. Driven by envy. Handing Jesus over to the Roman authorities. We'd read of how those, that Roman authority represented in the person of Pontius Pilate will declare Jesus innocent, not guilty, not worthy of death. And yet, having declared that, will sentence that man to death. Will send Jesus to the death of the cross. The death of the criminal, though declared righteous by both God and by man. We read of Christ dying the death of a sinner, though righteous, so that he could die in the place of his people. That's what was happening there. Displaying God's righteous judgment upon sin. Displaying his abhorrence of it. As his own son, the incarnate second person of the Holy Trinity, has the wrath of God poured out upon him on the cross. So that if you trust in him, You can go free. You can draw near into God's promise without the wrath of God falling upon you and consuming you. For daring to enter into the presence of a holy God. You receive that of him this evening. Whoever you are, whatever you've done. Come and receive forgiveness of Jesus Christ this evening. Who died in your place if you'll trust in him. That's the great need. Salvation from sin. This great salvation that the angel announces in our passage for us. That's what it is. It was for this that this baby whom we remember being born in a manger at Christmas. 
Is that what that he was born for? Christians can and should be involved in efforts to alleviate poverty and cancer and the other ills of the world. But the gospel is not freedom from poverty. It's sin that's the great problem. Well, we've had the first two names and titles of Jesus here. He's the son of David. We've had his actual name, Jesus. But now we have a third and final name given to Jesus. Emmanuel. Look at verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. And this name is particularly significant because Matthew makes it clear that Emmanuel is not Jesus' name in the same sense that Jesus is his name. It's not his sort of Christian or given name, as we might call it. In introducing this name, Matthew points to a prophecy that a virgin will conceive and bear a son. He's quoting Isaiah 7.14. He's talking about Mary, the virgin, who brought forth a son. But interestingly, he actually changes the original text of Isaiah 7.14 when he quotes it. In the Hebrew language of Isaiah, the original language, it said, she shall call his name Emmanuel. And then in the, there, was a, there was a Greek translation made, which Matthew would have known. Um, and, and in that version of it, it said, you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now both of these could have been understood to be saying that Emmanuel was going to be the name of this child. His sort of Christian, his given name. But that, of course, wouldn't be the case. That would be Jesus. And so Matthew tweaks the text to make the the actual meaning clear. That no, Jesus is his name, but Emmanuel is what they will call him. Emmanuel is what he will end up being called. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Not she, not you. That's That's what he'll be known as. People are sometimes given additional names in life, aren't they? And they're usually significant. The man that we usually refer to as as Genghis Khan. He was originally, when he was born, he was called Temujin. Or that's my anglicised pronunciation of the name. That's what he was called. Genghis Khan means something like universal ruler. But to the countless people who, who remember him, he's just called Genghis Khan. And in many ways, that's the more significant name. Because that's the name he was given once he'd been, he'd shown the type of man he'd become. That was the name he was given based on what he was like. And that's the sort of name that Matthew's giving us here. And he's underlining that it's that sort of name by changing this word to they. Emmanuel won't be his name in the same sense Jesus was his name. Though the name Jesus is significant. But he'll be called it because that's what people will associate with him. It will be seen that this is what he is. It will be seen that he is Emmanuel, which, as Matthew tells us, means God with us. This child will be and will be known to be and seen to be the manifestation of the presence of God. However, more than that, the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, the rest of the New Testament, make it clear. This one will not simply be 
a man through whom God shines forth or something like that. No, this one is not only a representative of God, if you like. This one will be God himself. The idea of God being with his people, it's an idea which runs throughout the Bible. And it ultimately, again, it goes back to the very beginning. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. Before Adam and Eve had sinned, they had communion with God. Eden was like a sort of temple. A place where man and God dwelt together in fellowship. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they disobeyed God, they were banished from Eden. They were banished from the presence of God. And throughout the Old Testament, there's the promise that this will be reversed. That this banishment from God's presence will at some point cease. We see the implementation of this in an imperfect way. With the institution of firstly the tabernacle and then the temple. Places where God's presence was known, if you like, sacramentally. But with all kinds of regulations and all kinds of restrictions that made it clear that you couldn't really get there as close as you wanted to. But who could have foreseen this? That God would ultimately fulfill his promise to be with his people. By the king that he would send. To restore righteous rule and judgment. By the one he would send to save his people from their sins. By that one. Being not just a man who who shows God forth more than any other. But that one being the second person of the Holy Trinity. Adding to himself. The human nature, so that none of his divinity is lessened. That babe in the womb of Mary, that baby who lay in the manger in the stable, was not simply a representative of God. It was not simply a symbol of God's presence. That one, that Emmanuel, that God with us one, it's the very same one who created the world. It's the very same one who according to his divine nature, even as he was lying helpless in Bethlehem, was upholding the world by the word of his power. And in this we find find the coming together of God and man. We've spoken about the king God has promised to restore righteous rule. Well here we find the needed king. But in him... We also find the God with whom we've lost fellowship. So all of our strands come together. We find in this one the Lord Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of all our needs. We find the son of David, the righteous king. We find Jesus, the one who deals with sin. And we find also our God. No longer far off. But near. Oh, what a wonder it is. Find the answer to our problems. We need a king, we need a saviour. But all of these things can only be worthwhile if we can draw near to the God for whom we've been made. Our greatest need is for God himself. We find him here too. The second person of the Holy Trinity has taken upon himself a human nature and irrevocably Never take it back. He is God man for eternity. And by this, 
Not only, do, not only does he draw near to us, but because he's a man, he unites us to God. Thereby drawing us near to God. Uniting us to himself so that in him, if we will trust in him, if we will be identified in him rather than on our own, we are called sons and daughters of the living God. Let me ask you this evening, what will you do about that? There is a God. He's, he's appointed a king to judge the earth. It's the point of this baby born in Bethlehem. But yet he has come to find us. We who are lost in, and dead in trespasses and sins. And when he did that he didn't come by an angel. Didn't come by sending an emissary but by coming himself. Do you doubt that God cares for the world? Then will you behold this God this evening? Will you behold the love that he has poured out upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you doubt it any longer when you see that God himself has come down, that he's borne your penalty for your sin if you will trust in him? Well, as we conclude, what will you do? Will you draw near to this baby whose birth is announced to Joseph? This one who's God? This one who has come to save from sin and to restore righteousness in the world.